Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Matthew Pimbleton, who is the author of Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origin of America's Global Drug Wars from the University of Massachusetts Press. Matt, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Stephen. Glad to be here. So uh, before we dive in and talk about the book, I'm wondering if you might tell our listeners a little bit uh, about your background and yourself and how it is you came to this particular project. Sure. Thanks. Um, So I uh, did my doctorate at American University and finished in 2014. Um, I'm now an adjunct professorial lecturer there, and um, I'm also a fellow at the D.C. Policy Center, where I work on drug policy here in the uh, D.C. Maryland area. Um, and I'm also a history consultant at the National Academies of Sciences, Medicine, um, Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, where I'm working on a history project about the academy complex. Um, so I came to this project uh, when I was a graduate student pursuing my PhD at American. Um, and I was really, I, I'm sort of a, a U.S. in the world kind of person. And I was really interested in the, the kind of the margins of the national security state as I began my graduate studies. And I was looking for um, a project to do my dissertation on. And I came across this story about um, some of the first agents that, that started trying to police drugs on foreign soil. And I was really interested in all of the various dilemmas that that raised about national sovereignty and about kind of the the boundaries between law enforcement and national security and intelligence, um, counterterrorism, all those kinds of themes. And then when I I dug more deeply into this subject, I found that there was um, sort of a little bit of a gap in the history of drugs in America from um, in the the middle of the 20th century, which to me was this really important formative um, period. So 
there was some really good literature on the early 20th century um, and some good literature on sort of later in the 20th century when you get into the sort of classic war on drugs era of Nixon and Reagan. Um, but there wasn't anything great about the period immediately preceding that. And this is also when the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is in existence, which is the nation's first drug enforcement agency. Um, you know, so I was I was kind of dissatisfied with the literature that existed on that. Um, most people are familiar with Harry J. Anslinger, who was the nation's uh, the the U.S. Commissioner of Narcotics and kind of the nation's first quote unquote drug czar. Um, and when you just like pop Anslinger into Google, you basically get all these hits on the like this wildly racist kind of rhetoric and language. And you know, as I probed some of this a little bit more deeply, I found that a lot of that stuff is kind of misattributed or there's sort of the footnotes kind of run around in circles. And um, I couldn't chase down a lot of the, the sort of wilder uh, stuff that he would is, is alleged to have said, you know, and that to me just was like a really good example of uh, the kind of flimsy understanding that we have of the history of drugs in America, of the history of the, of the drug war and this agency specifically. So why don't, why don't we, actually, it feels like that's a great place to start. Um, as you say, I think that, that when most people think of, of the, the war on drugs, and I think it's, it's important that, that you talk about wars in the plural there, um, but, but usually that narrative, as you say, begins with Nixon or maybe Reagan. But part of the sort of the longer story you tell in, in the book is a much earlier start to those kinds of engagements, both domestically and globally, with an agency that I think most people uh, have either never heard of or, or, or have heard only sort of in, in passing. So, so why don't you start talking to us a little bit about what is the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, where did it come from, and what kind of work was it engaged in in its early years and sort of how long was it around? Tell us a little bit about that history, if you would. Sure. Yeah. So most people, it's like if they know anything about the FBN, or the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, it's like the reefer madness stuff from the late 1930s. Um, and that's really how most people know about Anslinger. And it kind of has this image of being like the godfather of drug prohibition in America. And some of those, some of that reputation is deserved and, and true to a degree. But again, I kind of wanted to dig further into it. So the FBN runs from 1930 to 1968. And it is the grandfather of the modern Drug Enforcement Administration. There was this brief five-year agency under um, first LBJ and then Nixon uh, between those two called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. But the FBN was really important. And for 40 years, it's it's the nation's, it's the most important agency on drug control. Um, so, you know, one of the things I was interested in, in tracking is the evolution of the drug war. And Basically, you know, the war on drugs does not emerge into a vacuum that um, which interesting when you compare some of this history to what comes later is that, you know, Nixon was actually something of a break and introduced important public health initiatives before he kind of went back toward the, the punitive war kind of model. Um, you know, so the, the larger point here is that none of this stuff emerged out of a vacuum, that there were these important policies that were already in place, these trends that were already in motion that develop over the course of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and I was interested in tracking how those emerge and evolve. Um, you know, so some of the, the sort of big highlights are that by the time we come out of World War II, the idea of what 
drugs are or sort of drugs as a social menace has completely transformed that um, at the beginning of the century, drugs were kind of hovered between an important commodity and medicine. And by the time you get to the 1940s, they are um, firmly established as an illicit good and a black market good and subject to prohibition. So um, there's this combination of sort of influences where the U.S. is trying to criminalize drug use um, outside of a very narrow medical realm. Um, but they realize that they can't do any, they can't do much about demand, that they can't deter people from using drug use except through th- threat of sanction. Um, so because they figure there's not much they can do to lower demand, the only real solution is to focus on supply. But controlling supply means that you have to work globally to prevent the drugs from showing up in the first place. So there are a number of initiatives to try to control global supply that happened in the first half of the 20th century, but the United States doesn't really have the clout to do much about it. Coming out of World War II, all of that changes. And for the first time, the Bureau of Narcotics and the U.S. have the, the sort of the geopolitical clout to try to operate on a global scale. So the FBN begins to send agents overseas uh, to try to interdict and prevent the drugs from leaving their place of origin. Uh, this is the policy of source control. And at the very same time, the, the FBN is, is pushing for an increasingly punitive model at home. So at almost this exact same moment in 1951, you see the very first mandatory minimum sentencing laws go into place and the establishment of these very first foreign offices, which uh, counter sort of counterintuitively to most people's understanding of the war on drugs, it begins in the Mediterranean. The first office is in Italy, and then it goes into Lebanon, Turkey, uh, France, um, all well before it sort of matriculates back to the Western Hemisphere in Latin America. And a lot of that is 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 following poppy production, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's so in. In the years coming out of World War II, most of the poppy is coming out of the Middle East, and a lot of it's being grown in Turkey. But Turkey is sort of this uh, more canny geopolitical player where they don't really like these agents showing up in the streets of Istanbul and Ankara trying to tell the Turks how to police their drug supply. So they were kind of able to keep the agents out for a long time, for about a decade, Um So there's not much they can do sort of at the very point of origin about the actual poppy production. So for a while, the agents are kind of trying to straddle the illicit trade from the Mediterranean, and they're trying to um, sort of interdict at that middle section where the poppy is being converted into morphine base and heroin. Um, And it takes about about a decade before they're really able to kind of work all along the production chain, um, both at, you know, up from the retail level at back home in the United States all the way up through the sort of the conversion process and the smuggling process into in places like the interior of, of Turkey. So as, as, um, and you know, this, this is, is a history that I didn't really know too much about. One of the things that, that I, that I very much like about the book is you're not only telling that sort of institutional history, uh, but also offering us some biography of some of the key players and as you're talking about our our move into these global markets, uh, your your uh, introduction of, of of George Hunter White comes to mind. I wonder if you could tell folks a little bit about about who this guy was and what he was up to, and and the role that he plays, or the different kinds of roles, right? Because he winds up playing different roles earlier in the story than he does later in the story. 
Yeah, George White's kind of a crazy figure, and he's actually, um, he, he was kind of the guy, like he was the hook that sort of drew me into this. Um, and uh, basically by, he, he starts out as this agent in the 1930s, and he's kind of this rookie agent, but by the time we get into the, the post-war period, he's sort of this living legend within the Bureau, and he's actually the very first guy that they send overseas um in 1948 and he makes this bust in turkey um that is like one of the first times that an american agent has gone overseas and kind of orchestrated an arrest and a drug bust on foreign soil and this raises all kinds of complexities like he has no legal jurisdiction there but he's flashing his badge at these turkish suspects um and it produces these wildly different outcomes where uh on the Turkish side, they're pissed that this agent has come over and sort of brought all this negative uh, publicity. On the U.S. side, he's inflating the value of this bust and saying, we just took a, a million dollars worth of narcotics off the street. Uh, we did it over there, so we don't have to do it here. Um, and he goes on to become this sort of living legend within uh, the true crime literature of the early drug war. Now, what's fascinating about this then is that he very quickly kind of moves into this other sort of murky chapter of his career where he becomes this principal figure in the MK Ultra program, which was this uh, program at the CIA to try to use drugs like LSD to sort of reprogram people or brainwash people or even just weaponize psychoactive drugs so that you could use them as, as agents of disruption that you know, if you could spike Fidel Castro with LSD and get him to start talking crazy talk, that that would discredit him. So I think the, the larger consensus on the MKUltra is that it's this boondoggle that doesn't really produce anything of value. But White shows up as this kind of crazy figure in this story where he's um, running these safe houses in New York and San Francisco and he's recruiting all of these prostitutes to dope Johns with LSD. And then he's like hiding behind these uh, two-way mirrors where he's kind of watching the action unfold and seeing what happens to these people who are spiked with LSD and have no um, idea of what's happening to them. Um, so, and then White's story kind of broke the surface of public awareness in the 1970s. Um, and strangely, his widow, he dies in 1972 uh, or three, um, right before this stuff breaks. And his widow left all of his personal papers to this local electronics museum because George White was into like wiretapping and some early stuff like that. So I guess she, I don't know if she didn't read this stuff or what, but eventually it made, it made these papers make their way to Stanford University. So when this stuff is being brought up in front of congressional hearings, reporters start to go to these papers. And there's this famous uh, quote that, that blows up in the 1970s where he says um, he's writing to this CIA scientist by the name of Sidney Gottlieb, who was running the MK Ultra program for the CIA. And he writes, of course, I was a minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill and cheat, steal, deceive, rape and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all highest? So reporters, you know, made a lot out of that. But to me, it was this really interesting statement. I mean, White's this super colorful figure who's always kind of playing up his adventures. But that that phrasing there, it sort of speaks to a lot of these dilemmas that, to me, were inherent in drug control and in national security more broadly about sort of how far do you go to protect the nation? Um, 
if you think about like Dick Cheney going to the dark side and taking the gloves off, it like it speaks directly to those kinds of dilemmas that here's a guy who's supposed to be protecting the nation from drugs. But by night, he's experimenting with drugs and kind of weaponizing drugs in the service of the national security state. So it's about those kind of trade-offs um, that you make in sort of the pursuit of absolute security and and sort of the the way that that can, can lead the nation. It can lead individuals and it can lead the nation astray, that absolute security is impossible. You can't really police drugs out of existence, nor can you make the country ever 100% safe. Um, so in, so if I can, in, 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 sure. in that vein, you... Um, you talk, talk about the ways in which the drug war laid the foundation in some ways or made possible certain elements of the Cold War, which in turn laid some of the groundwork and made possible some of the elements of the war on terror. Can you talk about sort of that that longer historical progression and what you make of that? Yeah, yeah. I would not say that the drug war kind of led the way before the Cold War, that they kind of have more of this mutually constitutive relationship. In the book, I describe them as brothers from other mothers, um, that they're kind of like step or half children. Um, and both basically are operating under the assumption that we can protect ourselves best if we dictate events overseas. The idea that you have to fight them over there so that you don't have to fight them at home. Um, that, you know, demand is hopeless. So you have to control supply and you have to control it at the site of production in foreign nations. And that's that same idea that animates the Cold War, that we have to go uh, contain the Soviet Union so that we don't have to deal with uh, radicalism or subversion at home. And, you know, those boundaries break down really easily, but that's sort of the core assumption behind American national security. If you look at documents like National Security uh, Document 68 in uh, 1950, this was like the major um, national security doctrine for the Truman administration, where they're describing this global security perimeter where the defeat of free institutions anywhere in the world represents the defeat of free institute, you know, jeopardizes all free institutions. So it's the idea that coming out of World War II, American security now operates on a global scale, that it's not enough to kind of sit back behind our borders and behind these oceans. We have to be able to go out and, um, and dictate the outcome of events overseas. Um, you know, and then that that informs the war on drugs. It informs the Cold War. Uh, it informs eventually the war on terror. All sort of operate on the same core assumption that um, the only kind of security that exists is through leadership and often through intervention. So you 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 write that the drug war drug wars have always been about more than just r- drugs that they've always been about something else, but you say that that the something else that they've been about has changed over time. Now, some of that, I think, is contained in what you just said about that transition, but but you mean something more by that too, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's sort of the like acute geopolitical context, but then there's the sort of the broader social and cultural context. And I, I ultimately think that that part is more important. Um you know, Ronald Reagan, as befits the great communicator, probably said it best when uh, in the same speech where he and Nancy are urging America to just say no. Toward the end of that speech, he says, drug abuse is a repudiation of everything America is. And that, to me, really encapsulates it, that drug control and the drug wars are about identity, that um, drugs are a super complicated issue. And it's kind of 
subjective and murky to, to parse the difference between use and abuse and addiction. Um, but if you can portray it in these really stark, clear moral terms, then it becomes a way to assert America's identity that we are against the slavery of drug addiction. We are against criminality. We are against these things that hurt, uh, you know, that tear at the social fabric. Um, and of course, the reality is, is that the drug war has probably done more to disrupt the social fabric than the drugs themselves have done. Um, so t- talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what, are, what are the consequences of the drug wars? Um, well, <laughs> there are a lot of them. I mean, if you sort of go to the classic period of like uh, the crack epidemic, I mean, that sort of was partly was overstated. I mean, it's not to say it wasn't real. It definitely was. Um, But it played right into these larger narratives that, you know, the Reagan administration came into office intent on scaling back the duties of the federal government, that it thought that so the social and economic policy of the 1960s had largely failed, and they wanted to kind of pare back those duties and obligations, which meant that you had to stand and succeed on your own as an individual in America. So there's no duty to kind of rectify massive socioeconomic injustice. Um, And drugs become a way to kind of explain that, that, oh, well, this community is plagued by drugs and that's why it, uh, it fails. Um, You know, and that becomes even more important in the context of like Reaganomics and supply side economics. Um, you know, and then there's the sort of the more well-known, so there, it operates on this ideological level. Um, and then it sort of operates on a more practical level too, of creating like the era of mass incarceration, that the drug war becomes one of the primary agents of mass incarceration, um, which has, you know, really damaged communities of color in the United States, um, has turned, you know, has really exposed some of the hypocrisy of um, the American system. Um, and, you know, it's been really damaging to the United States and to its people. And do you have, I mean, you don't really spend a lot of time uh, uh, on this particular question in the book, so you can, you should feel free to dodge it. But I'm wondering if you, if you have a read on, um, I mean, I think, I think it's, 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 it's fair to suggest the ways in which the, the, the drug war has had disproportionate impact on low-income communities of color in particular. Do you have a read on the extent to which that is intentional? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the fundamental dilemmas here that um, you've got books like The New Jim Crow, which I think are hugely important for pointing to the consequences. Michelle Alexander's book, yeah. Yeah, and I think that she's like 100% right in pointing to the consequences of the drug war. I think she's actually, you know, I don't think she's as apt when she's talking about the causes of the drug war, that I, I don't see this as being a deliberate project. And again, you know, this kind of goes back to like the cartoon racism of Anslinger. Like I, I don't think that the drug war is the product of like a couple of villains twirling their mustaches in the white house. Um, that one, if that were true, it would be easier to correct. Um, and two, it's like, it's more pernicious and subtle and structural than that, that if you kind of go all the way back through some of these various episodes into things like prohibition, um, it's about social control. It's about, you know, drugs and addiction look more dangerous when they're being used by people further down the socioeconomic spectrum. And I mean, the reality is that these people have fewer resources. So when addiction take holds, it, it is more damaging to the social fabric further down the socioeconomic ladder, but it also looks more threatening to mainstream America. So 
drugs and addiction are always being kind of run through this lens of America's social conflicts and tensions, which means that it always has this inherently sort of racist as well as misogynist and classist kind of framing to it. Um, you know, and race and class have been the sort of the more um, prominent uh, of those in sort of shaping official policy. But um, to me, it's it's a more complicated and transactional and sort of negotiated process than just like, we need to come up with a new way to reinforce white supremacy and let's use drugs to do that. I, I, I think that's too simplistic. And it's, it's if you take, you know, sort of what what uh, Ehrlichman said, right, right uh, uh, in, in the Nixon period about sort of the, there was an explicit it was a political strategy that was racialized by Nixon, but it wasn't necessarily about maintaining white supremacy. It was about maintaining right. political. Yeah, power, right? right. So, I mean, it's. It, <laughs> It operates like all up and down this sort of ideological scale. Um, you know, for what it's worth, Ehrlichman was saying that stuff in like the early 2000s. Um, and what's interesting about Nixon is that for a while, you know, he came in with clear political enemies. And Nixon is is famous for his dirty tricks for a good reason. But, you know, just as it kind of took Nixon, the cold warrior, to recognize China, it took Nixon, the drug warrior, to kind of try these more innovative uh, approaches that you know, only under Nixon do we have anything approximating uh, a coordinated national treatment system. Um, that it's under Nixon that we begin to put serious federal dollars behind things like methadone and um, treatment and rehabilitation. That's the only time in all of American history that treatment for uh, that, that funding for treatment has reached parity with funding for law enforcement. Um, you know, so it, on the one hand, it's sort of at the rhetorical level of national discourse the drug war serves important partisan ends for Nixon, and he's quick to manipulate those. But he also recognizes that it is a legitimate social problem that he needs to try to solve. Um, you know, and it's always this sort of Nixon, the pragmatist versus Nixon, the paranoid. Um, and for a while, the pragmatism rules out from about 69 to 71, but in times for 72. Let's talk a little bit about about the the, the contemporary epidemic. And I'm thinking about um, what we know about uh, uh, overdose deaths from from opioids, um, and one of the observations that you make in the book and, and and tell a fair bit of this story is that there is a really long pattern of creating addicts out of using drugs for medical treatment. Can you talk a little bit about that story and maybe your your take on on whether the the current moment does or does not connect to that history and in what way? Oh, yeah. The current moment absolutely connects. It's part of this recurring cycle that we're now sort of um, at the peak of. Um, so this is interesting, too, because it, it speaks to the process of how history kind of works that, um, you know, history is always a, is always in dialogue with the present. Um, and when I started this project, I was very interested in some of the themes we've already covered about national sovereignty and intervention and national security but by the time I was finished, um, it, everything is framed against the question of the opioid epidemic. And then I became really intensely interested in like, how does this long history of the drug war um, either fail to prevent or lead directly to the worst drug crisis in living memory and probably the worst drug crisis in all U.S. history? Yeah. So in, in terms of like the larger pattern, um, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, addiction was a huge problem because drugs were essentially unregulated. Um, 
So you had doctors relying heavily on morphine, partly because it was one of the most useful and only tools kind of available uh, to them to alleviate the suffering of people suffering legitimate medical uh, problems. But it was also in all of these patent medicines. um, So it was largely unregulated. And there is this big spike in narcotic addiction in the early 20th century. As that begins to slide down the socioeconomic ladder, that's what kind of prompts, um, you know, as it sort of escapes from sort of like respectable society in the medical context into more of a recreational commodified um, context, that's when you begin to see control laws first becoming articulated. And before long, you've got the Bureau coming along to enforce those. So there's this pattern where these kind of spikes play out where... um, American society kind of overreacts to these spikes in drug use and abuse with prohibition and panic. And then we kind of recognize the problems introduced by intense prohibition. And then we loosen up and then use climbs back up. Um, And you see this real clearly with the history of opioids and opiates um, that in the 1990s, we begin to, to sort of recognize that perhaps we've been too stingy with the use of opiates in treating legitimate pain. And you've got this whole uh, therapeutic revolution, the pain revolution, the fifth vital sign, um, stuff that's been really well covered by by uh, authors like Sam Quinones in Dreamland. Um, and uh, Barry Myers got a new book coming out, um, a revised version of Painkiller. And all that stuff is really good on on this sort of origins of the pharmaceutical side. So we relax a bit on that opioid use goes up uh, and then we quickly realize that, oh, they're more damaging um, or, you know, they are addictive, even if they come in the form of a pill rather than a powder. Um, And, you know, the present crisis is basically the product of tightening up that legal supply. It's already created this huge market of new drug users. And now they've moved from the legal market into the illicit market. And that's what's driving a lot of this spike in overdose deaths now is that um, traffickers have turned to cheaper, more powerful synthetics like fentanyl to kind of meet the growing demand. And that's what's really driving this spike in overdose deaths. So, again, you know, sort of stepping back in the big picture, my contention is that I think the drug war kind of led to some of this because it really reinforced these binaries about where addiction takes place, that addiction is something that happens on the street with heroin. It's not something that happens in the doctor's office with drugs like Oxycontin. Um, you know, so the drug wars had us so fixed on looking for bad guys like, you know, criminals or foreign villains and, and drug traffickers that we overlooked the danger posed by legal industry. And that was a danger that the country recognized in the first couple of decades of the 20th century when you begin to see sort of the first elements of the drug war begin to evolve and emerge. Uh, I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Matthew Pembleton, who's the author of Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origin of America's Global Drug Wars uh, from the University of Massachusetts Press. Uh, so, Matt, tell us a little bit about, about what you are working on now. What's next? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my next book project uh, will be, um, it's got a tentative title of American Drug Wars. And I've actually been teaching this course at uh, American University for a couple of years now. And it will basically be a survey from the colonial era up to the present, um, covering America's experience with alcohol, tobacco, a little bit of sugar, um, 
you know, recreational and legal pharmaceuticals, so illicit and illicit drugs. Um, and I think it'll be a useful way of one, showing how some of these patterns, you know, have played out over time that there have been these recurrent drug problems and drug panics. You know, if you go back to something like the Great Whiskey Binge of the 1820s, it doesn't look all that different from some of the more recent drug panics that we associate with actual drugs. You know, the alcohol is kind of always in this uh, borderland between drug and food. Um, so it'll be a way of kind of uh, uniting a lot of these disparate kind of stories in ways that they can all offer insights into another. Um, I'm hoping that it'll kind of demystify the concept of drug, that drug is not this binary category. It doesn't either mean an illegal recreational drug or a medicine, that it's more of like um, a spectrum. Um, you know, and I think that that binary has been one of the problems that we've we've struggled with an effective drug policy in America is that we treat it as either this medicine that should not be regulated or regulated only as lightly as possible, or this illicit drug that needs to be absolutely punished and wiped out. Um, so I hope that by sort of telling this larger story, we can um, introduce a little bit more nuance and context into some of the, the conversations around drugs and drug policy in America. Sounds fascinating. I hope you will reach out when, when that's done. Thanks, I will. We'd love to pick up the conversation. Uh, Matthew Pambleton, author of Containing Addiction, The Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug Wars. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Stephen. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.